0: Welcome to Talking Tax, a Bloomberg Tax podcast. In this series, we're talking all about tax reform, the proposed changes that you should be aware of, the implications for both practitioners and taxpayers, and how we expect the process to play out going forward. I'm your host, Alison Versprill, a reporter at Bloomberg Tax. Today, I'm joined by John Schraub, Managing Principal for Tax Policy at Deloitte Tax LLP and a former House Ways and Means Staff Director and Minority Chief Tax Counsel. I'm also joined by Chris Trump, no relation to Donald Trump, uh, who is a principal at Deloitte Tax and specializes in international taxation. Prior to joining Deloitte, Trump worked in the Internal Revenue Service Office of the Associate Chief Counsel International. Both John and uh, Chris will help us sort of decipher and pull apart the international provisions in this final tax bill that first came out last Friday. Uh, John, Chris, thank you for joining me.
1: Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So I wanted to, you know, start this podcast just diving right into, um, the main provisions that we're seeing in the international and the base erosion spaces. So can you, you know, describe, um, where we are now with those provisions and how they evolved during the conference process?
1: Um sure, Alison. This is Chris. Maybe I'll take a crack at the technical and John can talk a little bit about the, uh, the politics behind it. Um I mean, I think entering the conference, uh, sort of, uh, you know, the conference itself, there were sort of a number of competing provisions that were different in the House versus the Senate bills. But, but in substance, I think they were trying to get at the same thing. That is, there was something that looked like sort of a, a global, you know, min-tax, for lack of a better word. That in the uh, House version was the foreign high return amount, and in the uh, Senate version was what's called the guilty tax. There was also in both bills limitations on deductibility for interest expense that were broader, um, substantially broader than the current rules. And um, and the third, there was uh, you know what the Senate version was to this called the base erosion alternative tax, and in the House bill uh, an excise tax. And I think going into the conference, there was a, a strong expectation that the Senate bill would likely be the uh, the bill that would win out and I think that is what we saw. I think most of the provisions that made their way into the the final conference bill were the uh, the beat, the base erosion alternative tax, and also the the guilty um, both from the Senate bill, with some minor changes I think to conform them to the House. Probably the biggest surprise and maybe it wasn't a surprise at all, but the biggest change was the removal of the additional interest expense limitations, which were in 163N in both the House and the Senate bill. I know there was a lot of discussion going into the conference around whether the uh, Senate might cede uh, to the House on that. But the fact that neither made it into the bill, I think, was a bit of a surprise, although maybe at the end of the process, not much a surprise given the, the polit- political dynamic involved. And maybe with, with that, it's a nice segue to John to talk a little bit about that polit- political dynamic.
2: Yeah, this is an issue Republicans have been working on for some time. There's been a a long-held concern that the United States' general worldwide tax system uh, has been an impediment to competitiveness of the American uh, uh, corporate sector. That is, by imposing a second level of tax on American companies when they compete abroad has made it more difficult for uh, those companies to to compete in a global environment. So moving to this territorial system has been a long-held goal of Republicans, although as I think Chris kind of alludes to, the final bill contains a number of these so-called base erosion safeguards that are intended to prevent American companies from misclassifying what should be U.S. source income as foreign source income to escape tax, and those in some ways uh, uh, make the, the, the sugar of this provision a little less uh, sweet for many of its effect- affected companies.
0: Well, and I think, and we'll come back to those base erosion uh, provisions, in particular, but I, I did have a question in regard to another international change with this, um, or another international provision with this deemed repatriation. And I know one thing that stood out to me was one, uh, they raised the rates from quite significantly from what we first saw, I guess, you know, over a year ago in the uh, in the GOP's initial sort of framework for tax reform. And the other and significant thing about the themed repatriation tax is that it will be retroactive um, to before 2018. And I'm wondering, you know, when we're talking about retroactivity, does that create any challenges for multinationals as they try to comply with this new tax law?
1: Yeah, I mean, there are definitely provisions which require, in the repatriation in particular, sort of a backward look and, and looking at transactions that might have occurred. In sort of the you know the last taxable year beginning before uh, the effective date of these rules, so that you know what a company thought they might have had from a book or a or a, uh, or a cash tax perspective might be different in light of repatriation, I think we do see companies trying to work through that. I think the Senate was at least to some degree aware of that, as was the conference and the House, and so they tried to put in some provisions to alleviate that uncertainty but but I do think this aspect of a bit of a backward look is going to is going to cause you know work for a lot of u s based multinationals as they work through this this process. but the the other aspect of it, and I think this is a big one, is you know when the timing, I guess of when you would have to account for this from a book perspective, and I know there's been a lot of discussions um, at Treasury and on the hill based on the date the bill is signed. And my understanding is if the bill is signed in the taxable year, ending 123117 for a US-based multinational, they might actually have to determine their provision hit for all of the provisions as of that particular date, even if some of the provisions are forward-looking. And I think that's the other thing that we're seeing a lot of companies try to deal with is how, how do you think about, how do you deal with provisions where there is not a lot of guidance, where you need more guidance, where the IRS and Treasury would have to answer questions. Uh, given that, from a book perspective, you may have to start accounting for this um, now. I'll maybe let John talk a little bit about the political dynamic on the rates. I would just sort of comment yet that yes, the rates are definitely higher in the uh, in the current version than they were in the original version.
2: Yeah, I mean, when the, when this proposal was first made by then Ways and Means Committee Chairman Dave Camp in 2014, he proposed a rate of 3.75% on illiquid assets like bricks and mortar, plants and equipment. That have been, uh, invested abroad and eight, uh, and a half percent on, uh, cash and cash-like equivalents. And through the debate on this bill, we've seen those rates creep up higher and higher to the point now that the bill that is going to get to the president's desk is going to have an eight percent rate on, uh, bricks and mortar and a 14, 15 and a half percent rate on cash. And I think, you know, one thing that went on here is this turned out to be a dial that Congress could, you know, move up and down as it needed to fill various revenue holes. And I think what, what Congress also found is that as they moved it up, there was not as much squawking from affected industries as there, that might have been necessary to stop that upward momentum. So with no uh, strong opposition, no, no no line in the sand drawing, no fist pounding, no table pumping, uh, this was an easy dial to move up to meet necessary revenue targets.
0: And I guess, you know, you're saying that there wasn't a lot of, a huge outcry about this um, from the affected industries or companies. Uh, is there a reason for that? Do you, do they think the benefits outweigh this so much that they um, didn't quite mind the higher repatriation rates? And then when it comes to just these international provisions in general, um, whether it's the, the base erosion provisions or the repatriation or some of these other things, um, are there specific Types of industries or types of companies that are impacted differently.
1: I mean, my my well, guess as to why there wasn't a hue and cry just just is that I think people were willing to take the the bitter with the sweet, and they viewed there being as a lot of a lot of sweet in this. John, I'm not sure um, your take on sort of the the, the political aspect of that.
2: I, I would mostly agree with that, Chris. Although I'd also say there's an element of futility that if you if you didn't think you had the power to stop the rates from rising, what was the point in um you know, pounding your fists and, and, and holding your breath until your face turned red.
1: And then I guess in terms of the industries involved, I mean I think you know, I think there's definitely a, a potential impact on foreign parented US based multinationals with some of these base erosion rules. Um I think prior to the removal of one sixty three N you are probably going to get a very different answer for highly leveraged companies than you would get for non leveraged companies. And then because of the way this guilty provision works, um, you know, arguably companies that have higher profits offshore attributable to intangible income could have a broader amount of income brought back into the U.S. That being said, there's also a benefit provided in the bill for similarly situated companies with a reduced rate on tax on income derived from um, IP or intangible property to the extent earned directly in the U.S., and so, although there is definitely a broader impact of the bill to, to sort of you know intangible based companies, I think that there is both a arguably a positive and a negative to that, And the bigger piece that I think we're seeing now is companies across the board, regardless of industry, beginning to assess the the, the overall impact of all the changes in the tax bill, both from a you know a, a cash movement, from a financing and from a supply chain and operational perspective. And I think that's going to go on for the next year to year and a half at least.
0: Well, and as they, you know, sort of evaluate where they stand under this new, these new, this new law and as the IRS kind of figures out how it's going to write regulations on all of these provisions, especially, um, you know, deemed repatriation, which is retroactive. I know officials have said at conferences recently that that's going to be one of the areas they have to address first. Um, but without that guidance, you know, how do companies right now plan for these international provisions that really are such a huge shift from current law? Um, and do you envision any challenges going forward? Um, does this transition period that Congress put in for the base erosion and anti-abuse tax, does that help at all? Um, if you could discuss some of that, that would, I think that would be great.
1: Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that on a going-forward basis. There's going to need to be an assessment of how the rules impact clients across the board. Um, I, I think, as I said, most all of our clients are now looking at these provisions. What I think is going to be sort of the next step of it, maybe, is right now, I think a lot of people are looking these, at these provisions sort of individualistically. That You're looking at one of the base erosion provisions or you're looking at one of the new sort of anti-deferral provisions. So, so I, so I think that the the place where I think we're going to see the most interesting aspect is when people and clients and companies begin to try to assess the overall interaction of the provisions. Right now, I think clients and, frankly, a lot of um, advisors are looking at these provisions independently, um, sort of individualistically. What I think will be interesting and harder is when we all begin to realize the way these these provisions interact both in intended and likely in many unintended ways. And and that's the piece that I think is going to probably be the biggest challenge going forward and probably put the most pressure on the IRS and Treasury. Right? It's easy to write a singular rule or easier to write a singular rule dealing with deemed repatriation. It's much harder to write a rule that's going to tell you how um, the global intangible rules are going to apply in light of base erosion um, payments. And I think that's the place where we're going to see a lot of work being done and need to be done over time. I mean, the other thing that I think is interesting to remember, which folks have reminded me about, is this is the biggest change of at least international tax law since 86. And we had the IRS putting regulations out on statutes put in place in 86 up till a year ago, still answering questions. And that doesn't even take into account the technical corrections and the other sort of overlay of potential changes going forward. So I think, I think this is just the beginning of of a, a lot of planning, a lot of discussion, and a lot of assessment of the rules that both clients, tax advisors, and frankly, regulators and uh, legislators are going to need to think about over the next, you know, at least year or two years, if not, if not farther into the future.
0: So it sounds like what you're saying is that uh, everyone will have their work cut out for them in the next year or a couple years, uh, whether it's taxpayers, companies, Um, or the IRS. So we'll have to see how this evolves going forward. Uh, But John, Chris, thanks for joining me today.
2: You're welcome. Thank you, Allie.
1: This has been Talking Taxes' final tax reform discussion for 2017. Tune in in 2018 for even more updates on the largest tax overhaul since 1986. We'll see you then.